You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another riveting episode of Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy, also joined by my beloved co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing today? Well, it's a little weird here, Dick. It's kind of smoky in Portland. We're apparently the most hazardous air conditions in the entire world. And to be on brand with our podcast, we've got a lot of our brothers and sisters out there, brothers particularly fighting fires on the West Coast. And um, so I'm really thinking about them lately, really, really thinking about the folks. Also, our local women's prison has been evacuated. We've got a lot of our brothers and sisters out there really having a a difficult time in, in tough, trapped circumstances. I don't know that any of those low-key drug crimes are worth the punishment that they're getting for them right now. In fact, yeah, would, they're not. It's super disturbing. Yeah, so prayers up for those folks, for reals. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And uh, very fortunately, knock on wood, um, it looks like the fires are starting to dissipate and hopefully everything continues to calm down up here. And there's some new laws coming into place, particularly in California, where the folks that are out fighting fires from prisons for about $8 a day previously would get out of prison and be unable to professionally do the job and they're changing the laws so that these folks can actually perhaps utilize their skills professionally once they get out. And, and that feels kind of heartening. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's very rare that uh, we report good news <laughs> on this podcast in, in, in regards to the prison industrial complex. But, you know, big shout out to the California governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, for signing that new bill into legislation, which makes it to where um, people find, you know, people currently incarcerated fighting fires um, will be able to actually get job opportunities to do so upon the release. And um, we could just use a lot more positive news like that. Right. I can't wait till we're reporting that there's no longer a need for our podcast because prisons no longer exist. (laughs) That would be wonderful. (laughs) I'd happily do a different podcast for that. Yes. (laughs) Maybe perhaps a cooking podcast. Sure. Anything, anything. Um, Let the people out. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, today on the show, we have Mr. Mualim Ak. He's the uh, prison abolitionist, human rights defender, and executive director of Incarcerated Nation Corp. Uh, also the website, incarceratednationnetwork.org. Um, Mr. Five, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad that uh, the fires are settling down in New York and, and, and out there, but I'm also glad that there's going to be opportunities for those uh, directly impacted post-incarceration. That is something that just should have been done so long ago, you know? Yeah. Hey, hopefully it catches on and uh, yes, continues using that path. Yes, sir. Here in New York, our pandemic, which of course was ground zero, um, and some of the most hardest hit communities were those who were directly impacted. But 
um, we counted the city and we didn't count the citizens in our immense, massive prison industrial system in New York State. You know, we have 62 counties, over 50 facilities, and they were transferring people to basically solitary confinement, uh, which haven't stopped. So we've had massive deaths inside. I wanted to just raise the level of awareness to people who are incarcerated in the city jail systems and also um, those in the state facilities and the federal facilities and the private prisons, which encumbrance New York State. Yeah, that's big. I mean, uh, yeah. as we all, you know, we, we all, especially when this pandemic first hit, we heard a lot about New York and uh, the quarantine and the deaths and stuff like that. Uh, very, very rarely did we hear about what was really going on in the prison system out there. And um, yeah. so it's one more example about how folks inside of prison are not counted as human beings and absolutely, absolutely catastrophic to our humanity. Yeah, indeed. So, um, Five, typically how we do this podcast is we start off, uh, you as a first-time guest, uh, we talk a little bit about your, you know, maybe your childhood, your upbringing, what kind of got you on the path uh, to where you're at right now. So if you're comfortable with that, uh, would you just kind of give us a little um, kind of rundown of how that began? Yeah, yes. Uh, so I was uh, born in Ethiopia. I came over here when I was younger. My parents came over here to make a better life. Um, then they realized, you know, holy crap, we're black. We have to fight to have a better life. Uh, so they joined a lot of social movements. Uh, my family were Panthers, abolitionists, and sort of um, community organizers. But to me, it was just survival programs, right? Uh, these programs included daycare, child care services. My mother was one of the founding members of SEBNIC. So then when they moved into the Bronx in the 60s, 70s, uh, Southeast Bronx Neighborhood Community Center. Just a bunch of wives and women who were doing patchwork quilts and having uh, daycare services for youth. And um, that at the time was considered domestic terrorism. Uh, my mom was one of the first social workers at Green Hope, which was a project with a nun named Sister Marinerni, who had a crazy idea of actually supporting women <laughs> when they came home from prison. Um, and that soon grew to a radical network of an issue that was a dire hand. Uh, my mom uh, passed away in confinement and my father um, dealing with the loss of that um, as of last week still. Uh, myself, I grew up a little different, uh, growing up in a conscious, political conscious family. Um, I went to private schools until I was able to um, be allowed to live outside of the compound. My family had a protective building, which other people from different states lived at, so different abolitionists, different groups. Uh, some people on the run from other places, my family, uh, my father growing up in the city of New York, between New York and California and different locations, I traveled a lot. So I'm very blessed to say I had over 30 pages on my passport um, before I was 18. So I've been to Cuba, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Jamaica, um, so many different places with my father. Um, he taught martial arts to Panthers and Young Lords, self-defense on women on Sundays. Uh, because he said he had to separate the classes from the men. There was a lot of hyper-masculinity in the movement at that time. Um, when I was young, I think what defines me is um, the moments that I've had, uh, the experiences that I've had, right? Um, I remember when I was young, my sister, her duty was doing dishes. And one day, she wasn't doing them, so I went to go tell my father. And he's on the phone, and I have to, like, kneel in front of him because uh, my father's one of the first black martial arts masters. He's a six-degree Dan and one of the only professionals. Uh, he taught Lamar Thornton, who went and taught like Wesley Snipes and Michael Jalal White and Stars and all of the Panthers. Wow. And his students are masters. Um, 
So I'm sitting there for like 45 minutes with my father on the phone. And I hang up the phone and I'm like, oh, the mother didn't do the dishes. He said, you sat here <laughs> for the time it took for you to do that deed. Now that's your duty. Um, so a family who fed 500 to 1,000 people a day doing the dishes was a very different punishment. So I grew up in service. I grew up working in the eating halls, servicing the people. Um, and in a point in time in my life, I tried to run away from my family and join the neighborhood street community gang and organization. And when I was in California, I joined uh, the Black Revolutionary Independent Military, which was a different sort of street organization. As I end up meeting the elders of that group, they're like, isn't your father? <laughs> and it points me right back home to that the Panthers and the community organizers and the leaders were really the ones who uh, shaped the community and did the services every day. People didn't know about the 20 something programs the Young Lords had, like um, the Hep C programs, the food programs, the detox, the political education, the legal education, the knowing your rights to dealing with police. Uh, the People's Survival Program was a barter or a trade business. It wasn't really a for-profit business. It was a way that you could trade service to help serve other people and get food for yourself. Uh, these still needs need to be met still today. Um, and throughout my life, um, I tried to control my community um, in different ways that weren't positive. Uh, and another point in my life, I said, I'm gonna move on and start doing real estate. And that's when I was incarcerated. Um, and they ended up locking up the officers who locked me up because of that circumstance. Uh, at one point in time, towns and communities who didn't have a drug problem had to create a drug problem. And so years later, lasting those officers, I'm uh, now able to be free, but my time in isolation and the, the experiences that I've had inside of incarceration has led me to come home to change those things. And a lot of us were like that, like my godfather, who's, I'm like I said, I'm blessed to have such a unique combination of family. My godfather is Joseph Jazz Hayden, who ran Harlem at one point in time, but also created voting rights and, and, and created cop watch and invented systems of community control. And so my duties at a longer point in my life, missing 12 years of incarceration, um, have changed. Um, you know, there's time to now enact that thing that has hurt me. And so, like, we have supported and passed over 60 pieces of legislation in New York State, federal, city, and state systems. That has led just from personal experience. So we're a group of people who are directly impacted by unique circumstances, and we take those experiences and circumstances. We often educate students in those fields to then help us to create legislation to make those changes. Um, when I came home, one of the first legislations that we passed was ending old box time. That just seemed like nobody did this already. Like nobody actually thought of creating a system to address the fact that prison and slavery records never end. So if you're arrested in New York State and you're released and, you know, you're going to court and just appointed detaining you because that's all right is, is detaining and you go to court and you argument with the officer, he sends you to solitary, writes you a ticket. And you're like, look, I'm here for DWI. I'm out of here in the morning. You least, um, you actually leave that facility years later, get arrested five, 10 years later. Um, you still owe that time in that facility in solitary. And so it's a waste of institutional resources, a waste of taxpayers' money. And that just sort of spiraled down the role of thinking of what has impacted me that was unjustfully uh, impacting others still. 
sorry, longer story, but no, it's, uh, it's very interesting that old box time. I mean, we're also talking about, you know, to all, for all practical, practical purposes, this is a human rights violation. I mean, putting people yes. in solitary confinement, just, if you'll just talk a little bit more about that, go a little deeper. Yeah. So, you know, uh, during my time incarcerated, um, to be honest, those scenarios came from really people not understanding the social conditions that happen inside a prison. People not understanding the social structures that exist and the society in some sense that exists in a different sort of microcosmic world that has different rules and different elements of living than the outside world. And so in that world, you can't have personal relationships. There's officers who are poor as well, right? And so you have to look at prison in itself when you think about solitary and means of cruel and unusual punishment, means of really cruel, humane, inhumane conditions. Where did they come from? And you wanna trace those roots. They've never sort of slanted or slided or adjusted from what they were from slavery. And so when you think about the prison industrial complex, it's not always a comfortable conversation Americans are willing to have. This is something that started this company, literally people. You know, I try to open that conversation in a new age with Rikers, right? Rikers was built in 1650. It was literally a pig farm because pork bellies in the stock market was a commodity. Well, you know, New York has a rat problem and the rats ate the pigs. And then they replaced those people, I mean, those pigs with people. And so the commodity then became human bodies around the 1600s. 1800s, of course, you had correctional systems like Auburn that took the model of the Quakers and said, you know what, that idea that drove everybody crazy and that idea that sort of was insane? Well, we think it works in every county. We're gonna build facilities to sort of hold the Northern prisoners, right? because we're still going through state wars. I mean, that same statue of that Northern prisoner is still on the top of Auburn facility today. Um, these are historically, it's almost like landmark, uh, prisons that are still open and still used in those methods are still today. So we invented waterboarding, we invented the electric chair, and one of our key staples that traveled from state to state, so every state facility moving up the county since the invention of Auburn, included solitary confinement. And so what did that punishment origin from, I think actually Quentin Tarantino uh, directed and facilitated that scene perfectly in Django yeah. when he's coming to rescue his wife. And he's like, what do you mean? She's being punished. She's in a box. So the psychological punishment to make people adhere to cruel and unusual uh, means of punishment, I mean, of, of behavior and actions come from torturous conditions. And I mean that in, in an understanding of this. I want you to do this service. I want you to make license plates. Now I'm gonna pay you six, all right, 16 cents an hour. We've had some fight on that. So I'm gonna give you 16 cents an hour. Oh, you're not gonna do that? I need a punishment so that I could put you in a torturous condition until you do that. Why does that exist? Because the American criminal justice system is based on the normality of slavery and the income of people's bodies. And so with that, you're gonna have some people that's like, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> I'm gonna resist. And those are the people that's gonna be punished. Not withstanding the understanding that America is built on inequality and that now that we have sort of, you know, a lot of my network is sort of takes credit for that, doing an immense amount of films and TV and articles and news and media and reality shows and virtual reality apps and everything possible to get people to understand this history, to get people to understand the conditions of confinement, um, working with Professor Mindy Fleelove to map and generate an amazing project of the 400 years of inequality. So it's known it's general language if you want to find it, right? If you want to ignore it, it's easy too. But if you want to find the truth of America, you can find that in the 400 years of punishment and sort of torture of people. So solitary confinement comes from that tradition of that to say, I need a psychological hold on you 
that will hurt you in a way that you know that this could get worse. Like, yes, you're a slave, so I can literally rip apart your body. Your body is physical property of the state. The state owns you, literally. I'm charging other citizens to keep you away from them. Don't worry about that. That's called taxes. But I own you as a person. So I can whip you. I can beat you. I can torture you. But you may be stronger than all of that and still run away. Well, you run away, I'll put your wife in that box. I'll put your kids in that box. And so solitary confinement became a confinement, a psychological hole. Now you're working in 100-degree weather. You're picking cotton, and you're being whipped and beaten. But you know there's a punishment because John Doe was stuck in there suffering in this hot box, just a metal box put in the ground, and you're just stuck there. Sort of like what we have today in solitary confinement. It's just a metal box put in a facility, and now we just hire. Often in the ground. Yeah, totally. Often underground. underground. Utterly dehumanizing and controlling. And And I'll just slide in for anyone who finds this even remotely confusing or fascinating or needs to know more, 100% required reading is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. It's so important for people to understand that this system is absolutely slavery. Yes. Can I add a title to that? So I would say The History of U.S. um, Mass Incarceration by James Kilgore. It's It's an easy read as well. And if I wanted to compliment how people who feel, how did America specifically governmental uh, sort of um, you know, cabinet by cabinet, president by president, I would look into Mark Maurer's uh, Race to Incarcerate. Yeah. If you're able to read the book, you're an amazing person, but there's a graphic novel for the rest of the world <laughs> <laughs> who sort of needs to have pictures associated with it. It's also easy read for youth, um, and you'll get how every presidential system has added on to the system of mass incarceration. But right. um, it's a crucial understanding to it help is. go it forward is. with this work. It is. And um, I'm sorry, I don't want to be too, too exaggerative, but my case, uh, so I went to solitary for uh, horrible reasons. Let me just say why I went there. Um, possession of stolen property, uh, unauthorized exchange, hoarding, uh, destruction of state property, and possession of multiple, oh my God, multiple weapons, multiple weapons. So I'm in a self-search, which was stemmed from a social condition. I do portraits, they're doing self-searches. There's an A man and a B man. It's a control system, just like slavery had the house slave or the house, all white people weren't slave owners. Let's just put that on a racial note because I think that sometimes people are pushed back from the topic because they feel like they have association to it. They're still the 1% and the 99% category. And poor whites were people who are overseers on the plantation, which turned into officers. Just basically the whole system of criminal justice is to house and hoard people of color. Um, this system, or basically the bottom 10% of society, to be honest, because it doesn't have a race, it doesn't have a picture in it. And in mass incarceration, cruel and unusual punishment is about money. It's about a system that is based on uh, the punishment of people already marginalized. It doesn't include the rich because they don't even enter that category. Um, And so this system of perpetual punishment is designed to also be sufficient. And so there's a monetary charge with this legal proceeding. And so the legal proceeding of getting a ticket in jail is just equivalent to getting a parking ticket in the streets, right? I'm sitting in the projects. Let's just say I'm sitting in a bench. The cops pull up. They roll up. Hey, do you live here? Give me your ID. All right. Um, they give me my ID. They arrest me. They take me to jail. I go to prison. The prison looks exactly like the projects to me because it's the same contractors, the same bricks, the same buildings. The guards roll up. They're like, let me see your ID. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's how I got here. And then I'm like, I'm already in jail. They're like, oh, no, no, this is not jail. This is general population. There's another jail. There's another punishment past prison that we can put you in that's worse than this. And that is what solitary confinement is. It's a dungeon 
of mass incarceration is the dungeon of human rights. Um, a lot of my work has been consulting with United Nations when Juan Mendez was in a uh, position of United Nations Rapporteur on Torture. And we've tried so hard, um, which is a whole nother story. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but we've tried so hard to get into the facilities because he has the power. And that's another conundrum in New York State. You have human rights violations happening when you have the human rights institution that enforces international adherence to human rights. And that's called the optical protocol against torture, which principles say that those people who are torture survivors are the best agents to be able to go inside facilities and see if there's torturous condition. Um, America doesn't adhere to that, but forces other countries to not do that. So 14 days is considered torture is what we tell other countries, not what we enforce it ourselves. Um, so there's that artery of rights that inalienable rights that every human being has. Yes, there's a huge racial disparity in solitary. I even did a US commission on human rights with the White House to just address that. But these reports are frivolous if we the people don't take action to push behind it. And so we still have these conditions that are torturous based on a punishment system that is a mockery of the justice system, which to me is already a mockery of justice itself. And so this system is like a ticket system. So a guard can tell you've done something wrong and give you a ticket for it, which is a cost, just like a traffic ticket. And so it makes money for the facility, $25 per charge. So you're being charged financially as well. Now, you are three-fifths of a man. People don't understand that. You have no legal rights in prison because it's still based on slave rules and regulations. So you're not a human being if you're slave. You're a property of the state. You're a ward of the state. Um, and that system itself creates these categories of violations being property of the state. So as property of the state, I'm not allowed to talk to any other state property. Slaves aren't allowed to talk to each other. So there's a non... Yeah, you're not allowed to talk in jail. People don't understand that. Um, <laughs> they can actually write you up right, for unauthorized exchange because simple human normal emotions that we have are connecting. So let me go through my charges, how I ended in solitary. I went there because the new guy, the structure of A-man and B-man is an A-man who runs the whole block and a B-man listens to him. The B-man is always some young new kid who ends up being this young new kid who's frustrating the block. And I'm like, listen, I have to psychologically be prepared to deal with this person because the way I am, I'm a leader here. I'm a leader in prison as well. So I ran the tier. I was a porter for the tier. We had a water machine because there's no hot water in prison. So you get cold water in your cell, but there's a water buffalo. So we actually have to fill it up with water to give people water in their buckets. And that's how you wash up out of like five gallon buckets in a cell in the corner uh, because there's no showers or nothing. Everything is in a yard. So there's like a fish tank in a yard, phones in a yard, wrecks in a yard, everything's in a yard. And this A man sees a portrait that I'm doing because I'm doing a deputy superintendent's daughter <laughs> on a portrait on a wall and I'm doing other people's portraits. And so he wants a portrait and he says, can you do a picture of my babies? And so I'm like, oh, this guy, this is perfect. Like I'm gonna do a picture of his daughter or his kid and we're gonna connect and he's gonna like stop messing with everybody in the tear, making our life hell. Turns out this guy has owls as babies, which was a very difficult picture, right? So he got me some colored pencils um, and he could have actually gave them to me to do the portrait and took them back. But he wanted to give it to me because I insisted that I didn't charge him for it, right? I wasn't paying him for it. Um, and he wasn't paying me for it. And because of that sort of disconnection that a person can't do something for you, um, he immediately came back to my cell on a cell search to sort of find a reason to ticket me uh, before I even talk about this relationship that we had or something. And so that's a thing, right? You have a guard who's 
probably not living his life, who has to do mandatory overtime, who's doing prison time as well, who can't associate with these other suffering people who are in a marginalized category in society as well. And the difference of power is often race. And so this guard writes me these tickets of ridiculous reasons to go to solitary. So the unauthorized exchange was the guy next door saying, hey, five, you don't get mail. My wife sends me these black enterprise magazines. I'm a white guy from Buffalo here. You want to read these? But it has his name and numbers on it. So that unauthorized exchange also turned into possession of stolen property because obviously if I say he gave it to me, then he's going to go to the box too. The hoarding was because I had 52 stamps, which was two stamps over the allowed legal limit. And that legal limit is 50 stamps to have. Anything over that is considered hoarding. I also had two pillows, which, okay, I had two pillows. Um, the destruction of state property was that I lived on sixth floor in Auburn. So, you know, you have to fish. So I kind of ripped up a sheet, which they charged me $250 for, and then $200 for the, the other blanket that I ripped string out of. Okay, wait, pause. That money, they're charging you money out of your own account? Yes, yes. Okay, so you're paying. On top of the ticket charge. So each right. charge, I get $25. So and just I for the record, destruction of straight state property is also a charge you can get for hurting yourself or getting a sunburn because yes. bodies are state property. So you can yes, destroy also sheet, got that or you can go break a leg and get in trouble for destruction of state property. Yeah. Actually, you know, at one point in time, I was at a very low point in myself. Um, I'm a person who has mental health and living with that condition. It sort of exasperated while I was in solitary. And at one point in time, I cut myself on my hand to get attention because I'm thinking I only have this moment of panic. I'm talking to myself and I'm able to like, let me get attention because I'm reaching for the tray. So it makes Lodge, he sees a little blood. He'll give me because I'm diabetic and I also missed insulin the day before. Um, so if I didn't make this sort of stunt, I wouldn't have got out. And I got a charge for destruction of state property, which basically was me. Um, the unauthorized exchange was that the uh, hoarding, of course, destruction of state property, possession of stolen property, and then the multiple weapon was written up as 12 sharpened wooden objects. Pencils? Uh, yes. Colored pencils. Yes. So I'm like, one of, first of all, I, I try to make a joke out of it. Like I'm in solitary where people are supposed to be killers and I'm going there for pencils and postage stamps. Um, so that was the first <laughs> month of conversation with why are you here? And then I found other ridiculous reasons like the little kid, of course, the hall who was 17 and he basically needed to take his GD and he got into a fight in the dorm and then they sent him to the box and now he's taking his whole GD in the cell. And the transgender who was two cells down and her name um, literally upset the officers because she would get mail in her name and um, it, would, it would offend her. So I found that there was a person who was in a wheelchair, there was a person who was paraplegic, there was a person who was 60, there was a person who was 70, there was a kid. And I'm like, it doesn't matter who you are, right? We all end in this basement. Right. Of solitary confinement, which traps men, women and children of any disability or any dysfunction um, that's a part of the system. And they believe that they need it to keep control. And so the legal process is also a mockery of the justice system because it literally mocks the system like the ticket. You get subpoenaed. You go to court. The officer is the officer's superior who gave you the ticket. And I'm in here like the guy gave me a 106.10, which is a disobeying and direct order. I had a. I was in a cell one time where the top bunk was broken and he gave me an out of place ticket. And I was like, how am I out of place? I'm in my cell. And he was like, well, you're supposed to be on the top bunk. And I'm like, well, my mail says two bottom. And so he, you know, gave me the court date. And for me, this was fun. So I'm like, I'm going to make, this is my wreck. Like I'm subpoenaing everybody on this tier. Like, 
And when I subpoenaed him, you know, he stops the tape in the interview and he's like, all right, first of all, you can't subpoena these people. They aren't people. They're inmates. Like, these aren't human beings. You can only subpoena correctional staff. And so I'm like, I can only have a witness. Is the person who gave me the ticket? He was like, yeah, well, you know, Clyde. I'm like, who's Clyde? He's like, that's my son-in-law. That's the guy who wrote you the ticket. But, and I'm like, wait a minute. How is your relation not a difference of opinion or, or, or sort of a reasonable doubt to exclude you from these proceedings? Because most small towns, they're all related in those facilities. Like the guards are somehow related to each other. The other thing is that professionally, you're his supervisor. So this is not an arbitrary or fair justice system in which due process happens. And I think people forget the process of due process. You have an impartial judge, you have a jury, your peers, uh, you have a system to prove evidence. Nobody could just say something, you have to prove it. So I can subpoena witnesses, I can debate the validity of that evidence. And so he's like, wait a minute, <laughs> that's for people. <laughs> These are inmates. These are not people. These are like sort of slaves. So they don't have none of that. So, all right, if this, what's the outcome of this? Oh, you're going to get additional time and maybe an additional criminal charge. Oh, so I think I should consult a lawyer. Oh, you don't have the right for that. So I subpoenaed the locator who knows where everybody's uh, position is at. The locator said, well, you know, he's on two bottom. That's what his mail says. So he says, okay, I'm going to write you this 90 day decision. I'm like, why am I still being punished with additional time and punishments? He said, well, I can't say that my son-in-law is wrong. Like nobody could ever defeat the 106.10 because disobeying a direct order has a subline that says, even if it's the wrong order or the wrong thing, you have to abide by it. So you're right if you're the officer, even if you're wrong. Right. Right. You Who's tell me lose? jump out the window. I have to jump out the window, even if it's wrong. And so, you know, these little examples in my experience went on for years and years and years. And those solutions, I had a stack of what to apply when I came home. And like most post-incarceration and solitary survivors, our rage that causes us that damage in our brain that sort of loops us into this hyper-focus has been, I'm going to focus on destroying this because it is unjust and it's inhumane and all of my neighbors are paying for it, right? So my life has been that. Um, I really don't do much else but this work. I incubate projects and then engulf them under a network uh, from reentry to aging to jails action to the clothes campaign we have in many states to critical resistance to uh, the Freedom Food Alliance to rap, parole, prep project, like all of these campaigns we started and created from our direct experience. And to really make a career of abolishing our lanes of punishment. And so that has been uh, my life. I came home in 2010. Um, I sort of try to make a joke about the trauma of it. Um, they opened my door and was like, hey, five, you know how you've been talking about you're innocent. You didn't do anything. Well, turns out you're right. They just locked up all the cops that locked you up. Here's $40. Here's a bus ticket. Um, good luck. And dropped off 42nd Street, Times Square, looking like Jonathan Kimball, the fugitive. Like my hair is leaked, like my hairline's back here, so I look like Hihachi. I got the fugitive beard. Um, I had a panic attack. I forgot that there's two million commuters in 42nd Street Times Square. Also, I think New Yorkers forget that between two and five o'clock, there's a teenage kid rush hour that is like a million little tiny people on a train, uh, which actually adds to about four to six million commuters a day, right? So 
Adam but you can't time. take someone out of a zero no. stimulation situation and plop them in the middle of New York City or literally anywhere yeah. and have that be okay. Yeah. Dropped off, had a panic attack. They took me to the hospital, did a stress test. Um, the next week was kind of complicated because I am who I am. So it was like two reasons why they violated me. But they basically was like, well, that's fucked up. But turn around, put your hands behind your back. And they sent me back to solitary. And then I maxed out in 2012 and just been like uh, kicking butt since I've been home. Um, the other reason was uniquely who I am. My family's Panthers, my other family's revolutionaries. And it's both a huge collage. So uh, I also try to make a joke about this in lean of parole officers who have to deal with complicated people like me. Um, the parole officers saying, okay, well, uh, five, you on the front page of the Times with Angela Davis and like this guy, Jazz Hayden. And I'm like, oh, that's my godfather. And Mark Lamont Hill and all these people creating a nonprofit to help felons. Like the first line on parole says, you're not to be in contact with any felonies. And this woman's like America's most wanted. Like, what are you doing? Uh, turn around, put your hands behind your back. And so I got violated for helping other people directly impacted. But that has shifted, right? We've had a lot of pushback. And so now all of us own our own projects, all of us service people directly impacted. It's actually looked at parole in a good way that you're doing advocacy when you come home. And so I think that the pain that we go through and those little sufferings, yes, I did go back. I did a whole nother year and a half in a box because when I went back, they was like, hey, remember us? You still owe us <laughs> like a thousand days, dude. And I went back to the box. So um, there was a lot to fix and there's still a lot for us to fix. Um, and so, so let's I use pause for just a moment and yes, take please. a quick ad break and um, come back to that. Yes, there's <laughs> so much to fix. <laughs> okay, let's take, take a quick minute and we'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, welcome back to Felony Inc. Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Mr. Five Mualim Ak from the IncarceratedNationNetwork.org. Now, the IncarceratedNationNetwork.org is a national collective of credible messengers and human rights defenders who operate projects led by directly impacted leaders. Um, five, earlier you were talking about you got out, you went to the bus station, you had a panic attack, you went to the hospital, and then you went back. Um, I'm, I'm someone who personally suffers from PTSD and anxiety uh, due to a ton of experiences that I've had, you know, obviously, uh, jail, prison, um, those things have a big, uh, a big part to play in that. But uh, is it true that your organization is the only organization that goes to bus stations and picks up newly released people? You took, yes, you elaborate so a little a few bit years ago, Slate. Yes, so a few years ago, Slate had did an article around us, around people returning from solitary. So we have a monthly support group 
uh, we do a trauma-informed curriculum that sort of gives people the understanding of why trauma exists, sort of helps them avoid those triggers and those key points. Um, it's become a sort of normality that people who've been in solitary get referred to us for like a decompression period, right? Uh, because of the tragedies that have happened of people just being dropped off from zero isolation, from not having the ability to use their senses and sort of having this sort of sensory overload. Um, that has led to us literally going to the bus stops, picking people up um, to the point that uh, one of the old reverends from Sing Sing, the closest facility, Reverend Sabuni, um, started a whole program in Sing Sing that calls us every time somebody's getting ready to leave the box a week before. Um, so at least we have that jump period to say, I know your needs. Um, we've compiled that with moving on throughout the years with letter writing. And so our social work students, they need pro bono time to be able to get their degree. So does our law students. And we infuse that by creating a system of communication. Now, I know what you need the first day you come home uh, a year before you're out. I can help to make those plans. Um, those travels and expenses cost us, but uh, we rather that than the cost it would take to spend 50 to 75,000 when you get into a simple fight or you just can't, you don't know what a Metro card is. <laughs> You know, um, I've tried to do media to show that. We've done something with Al Jazeera around. Um, one of our brothers came home from after doing 46 years in prison. And he had no idea how the cell phone worked. He thought people were just agents. They had wires coming from their ears. But there is a communication, a technology, a information, and a sensory sort of confinement that comes with prison. And when you're home, it's a realization of that. And 42nd Street... Times Square, I'm not sure how people is, but they can Google New York and just see this sort of, maybe, maybe you should Google a past of it. Because <laughs> right now it's empty. But this was the worst traumatic place to be dropped off that. Um, and then parole, of course, was around the corner on 40th. Um, and then they mandated that as the only location because people don't understand the politics about it. They closed the other parole location on 30th Street and then doubled down the parole offices into one location, which people majority of time couldn't navigate to get to. Um, so we help with that. The other what thing is that, that decompression look like? I'm curious yeah. what your decompression process looks like for people. So one, you're surrounded by people who survived it. So that's the first thing, right? It's creating a relatable uh, 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 scenario where you can envision yourself in next year. So we, one, the transportation to our office is mandatory where we have a support system of people who either been home before you, people that you've connected to us and told us they came out before you, we'll invite them to the office so it's familiar faces. But also we've all survived that. And depending on your track of release, we have people who are signed mentors. That mentor been exactly where you've been at last year or a few years before. And it, it sort of relieves your conscience because in a state, everybody knows each other. And so it's like, oh man, I heard of you or I know who you are or you were released at this date, then you obviously know what works and what doesn't. Um, the other thing is a, which is hard now, but restorative justice requires a circle. And the circle system with just the talking piece and the restorative justice structures that's involved allows for a person to express their problems, express what their needs are. And we know offhand that there's certain needs that are just standard. Like it's standard, and this is odd, but people don't know this. It's standard for that person who's coming home, now our client, to say, this last page of my Bible is full of people that I promised that I would send stuff to. That's why one of our projects is a package company. So we're like, okay, give me that page, take that, send that, we'll send them packages and support them. Uh, one of the other immediate needs is 
housing, which of course we don't have, but we're working to gain. Um, and uh, how am I going to eat? And all of this stuff that I have that I can sort of readily put myself into a job market position, how do I transfer that? And so that support from solitary is that you may have had a degree in college. You may have had electrical programming certificates, but because you've been in a box for the last three, four years, it might've changed your memory of those courses or the perception of that. And so we immediately try to put you into something that's gonna schedule you to, to give a refresher trade into that. Um, that sort of normality gives a person, okay, I have something that's set up a week from now, right? I have things on the calendar day one when I come home, if not through communication before you come home. Um, it helps to offset depression. It helps to offset goal setting when you're talking to your family because all they want to hear is what you're going to do, not what you've done, right? Um, and it also helps dealing with the parole officer who you now have to go back, magically have $30 for, because if you don't, you're going to go to jail for not paying them because you pay them on parole. And then you're supposed to have the answers for all of this and you just came from a cave. So we send a mentor who has a relationship with parole who can then translate and facilitate these facilities. The decompression really comes with our circles, which lasts up to six, seven hours sometimes. Um, guys having panic attacks, like Terrell, when he came home, he's been inside for 30 something years. Like he couldn't go past the bus stop. Um, his body would physically um, panic and have a, a traumatic incident because this flush of memories and dealings and doings in that community come back to him. Um, so we, we try to work through that. The sad part is that there's certain ratios um, that happen. Um, ratios like people will come home and say, I'm gonna go stay with my sister. We know that's, that's gonna last about a year maybe. We know that the best thing is for you to have a safe space for yourself. Um, there are certain traits that you're used to that people aren't going to think is normal. Um, talking to yourself, repeating yourself. Um, these things sort of break out of normality when you're in a facilitator who is well-adjusted into society, who can safely correct you without telling you you're wrong, right? Um, because when in, you're in solitary, you're used to saying things twice to project it, and it becomes a normality. Um, washing up on a regular basis becomes something you have to remember because you're only allowed a shower maybe once a week. And if you're double cell, like one day out of the week, the water will just turn on for five minutes and you got to jump in for like two seconds and then, and then jump out for the other guy naked to jump in. And it becomes this weird social condition that is a punishment because you're like, why this guy always takes an extra two seconds to get out? Like it becomes this sort of combating nature that you're used to and those rules of engagement are different. The other thing is that people are very polite in prison. And I, and I, know, I know this may be a shock, People are very well distanced if they're able to. Uh, we look you in your eye when we're talking to you. And I'm not going to tell you something that I cannot do today because you may be gone tomorrow because of the urgency of the situation. And so with that, you get dropped off at 42nd Street. The first 10 people that bump into you, you're thinking, hey, this is a physical attack. This is an attack in my personal space. Um, and next, you know, you got like three scammers trying to get you for something. And it has led to altercations and problems. So escorting. Oh my God, I could probably spend a whole podcast on literally the reasons why and what we avoid just by simply going down to the bus station and picking somebody up. And then there's, to me, I wish I had somebody outside because we make these signs and we're like, with your name on it. And you're coming out and it's like you're in the airport, you're getting out of prison and there's a whole team of people right there uh, to support you. 
Um, yeah. I mean, it's so really I, a beautiful thing that you're doing that. Um, it's a big deal. I mean, it's a massive deal. It's, it's unimaginable. We can sit and talk and talk and it, about these conditions, and yet it still remains completely unimaginable for people who have not been through this what it's like to go through something like this and how it exacerbates, of course, the folks that are ending up in this place, they are already have experienced trauma in life, already are living with mental health issues. Those things are exacerbated to the nth degree. You know, giving returning citizens, people who return from incarceration, the ability to address what may have got them incarcerated, the ability to address how that has impacted their community or just their own healing, um, is why they call us credible messengers. Like our direct experience allows us to help the next person because we've been through those similar experiences, the similar punishments. Um, our solitary survivor program, the anti-torture initiative, is really just a support group because you know the damage is lifelong. Um, the reintegration is not one day. Nobody's coming home and getting a forty-dollar check and back to life. Um, it takes a long step. And throughout that step, if you're shepherded by those who have been through it, it's a little bit more easier and a lot more comfortable and trauma-informed for the person. The damage is multi-generational, in fact, yes. probably much longer even than one human life. Yeah, we always end up supporting the family unit, which is why the other services come in, right? Social services, counseling, but not only just the, the trauma-informed groups that we have, but tangible, like employment, um, nutrition, how are they housing, where they're gonna live, um, that sort of you know, life-threatening survival needs are what we're trying to tackle every day. Yeah. But taking the rage that once hurt you and caused you so much pain um, to work as an advocate. Some of our first exonerees, um, like Raymond Santana, my comrade, and Youssef Salam, they turned into advocates. That's how they won their case. Um, that's how other returning citizens can create justice but only through equality and voting rights was something we passed this year, which was equality based. Um, those things that allow a person to do the changes to the system so it won't hurt nobody else using their own narrative. Not only is self-therapeutic, but it's therapeutic for your whole community and it creates a pathway for the next person. And hopefully one day we'll have a system where people can actually, who are stopped for doing something wrong, can be actually corrected by supporting them and not punishing them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I like that you said uh, previously is that healed people who heal people is kind of how you describe what you're doing. Um, can you yes, talk sir. a little bit about uh, what the Incarcerated Nation Credible Messenger Institute is about? Yeah, so the Credible Messenger Institute was sort of side by side with the human rights work I was doing, right? So I'm doing human rights work under the Optical Protocol Against Torture, which if you, I could send you the link for that video, it's OpCat. OpCat's video explains, it's actually my whole case about that video, so um, the fact that torture survivors should be able to fight against the system that tortured them. Um, so the rest of the world adheres to that. Meanwhile, New York doesn't. So what Clinton Lacey did, who was the head of probation at one time in New York, he created the Neon Hubs, which was basically creating the probation hubs for youth in the community. When I mean probation hubs, these are the places that the thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and then there's a few more thousands with that, of kids who are on probation. Give you an example of probation. I helped co-produce a film, a series called uh, Time, the Khalif Browder series. Here you have a kid, first offense because of a prior criminal record or a ticket, gets five years, five, six months, six horrible months at Rikers, which he got years, of course, because he waited for trial. If he didn't, if he would have pled out, he would have got six months 
and five years on probation. What are we providing for those five years? Besides an officer, we pay an officer to say he'll catch you if you do something wrong to survive, but we're not going to help you with that. So Clinton created these systems. And he, you know, when I first came home in 2010, he had a meeting with me. I'm like, look, I've been out for all of like 10 days. What do you, what can I give? And he's like, you could prevent a youth from going in. Uh, when I finally finished my legal situation, he came home in 2012. He had already established him and Alfonso Wyatt, the credible messenger movement, which was they called us credible because the youth calls us credible because we work with them and we're known in that community. It's like me trying to fix the Bronx. I'm fixing my neighborhood because a large part of my youth was lived in this neighborhood. I know this neighborhood. Everybody knows me. I'm very influential in the neighborhood. So why don't we find other community leaders who are like that? Well, you know, New York used to be like that. We had truancy offices that we would hire from the community. Carl was my community truancy officer. Mr. Gonzalez was the guy in the domino guy in the corner who ran the community neighborhood association. Those two people were the neighborhood snitches. Like I couldn't cut school in high school and, and hang out in front of the school. I had to go to Coney Island. We went to the arcade on 42nd Street and the school would send the truancy officers who were community members. Um, and they're like, oh, I know where them kids is at. Meanwhile, we're running down 42nd Street, 34th Street. And he's like, I'm gonna tell your parents when you get home and Mr. Gonzalez, who's the neighborhood association guy, would be on the corner playing dominance. He'd be like, oh, you know, your father's going to be looking for you. You didn't go to school today. So the whole community was involved with your development. But also if you were a teenager, right, because a teenage brain consists of a different sort of actions in human life, scientifically proven. Um, it tells you to, yes, yeah, skateboard and jump off of this roof and be risky. Um, that's what the teenage brain tells us. And so Credible Messengers is this deep sort of training and we needed that training to professionalize those. So we started that at the new school. It's, uh, we developed and founded the Institute for Transforming and Mentoring, which went through different structured staff because every student from that then created their own violence interrupter group, credible messenger group, hospital responders. And that is what the mayor has named the crisis management system. Uh, we took that curriculum, gave it to Hunter, then gave it to CUNY free because the district attorney said he wouldn't fund us because uh, we were a private school. And so now, years later, we have taught the people who have the network and the Credible Mentor Institute is a network of all of those organizations, over 50-something Credible Mentor organizations working together across the city to stop violence, to train those people to mentor the youth on probation for those five years, um, and then also to deal with the loophole and the gap of those five years because there is no program that runs for five years. So I kind of, again, had to step back professionally for the last year or two and develop these five-year academies that absorb the youth. So for five years, we have Arches and Next Steps, which only run for six months apiece. So basically, we'll give an organization, the city will give us money. They'll give me $4 to feed a kid. That's it, $4 per child. They'll give me six months of Metro cards and give the kid $15 every day he shows up, even though if he's in the streets, he's making more than that. This kid comes in a part of his probation sentence for this class. Six months, I'm just getting to know him. Six months, I may start to address the underlying issues of his house, his instability, his family. And then from those six months, I'm now not funded. That kid is out of my program and lost to go to where, right? So we've created this academy based on business like Mikey Likes It Academy. We have uh, Mikey Likes It Ice Cream business. So people can actually go in buy merchandise, buy ice cream, buy these flavors that is employing the youth. We have free college programs and we're mentoring them for five years. 
And so this Credible Messenger Institute is producing a list of academies like that that is the new way of community control. It's the way that you can go shopping in a marketplace that's sort of a collective of businesses that only employs the youth under correctional control. You directly can support that. And probation doesn't have to worry about them being employed and not helping them. Okay, we don't need your help because you're not gonna help us. We'll create our own programs and help our own and we'll take them for the entire five years. And so community supervision needs to be absorbed by community. Uh, and you mentioned the Khalif Browder story and doing that. And um, yes. speaking of that, you know, we talk about 95% of convictions are the result of a plea bargain, which is, yes. this yes. is kind of the, the horror story if you don't go along with, uh, with the 95% of what could possibly happen to you. Um, yeah. we're, we're running a little bit short on time. Before we run out, um, I'd just like to kind of elaborate and kind of talk a little bit about uh, www.nycaic.org. Yes, that's uh, the New York Campaign for Alternatives to Isolated Confinement. And so what is happening right now, if you have a loved one in prison and he's infected by COVID-19, he's going to be isolated. The governor has already said, I'm going to isolate them in isolation. We already got those units. So he's going to go to solitary with other sick people. Don't get me wrong. This is not a medical sealed unit. He's not going to be able to get a mask. He's going to get a piece of handkerchief that's about this big. And that's it. Um, these people are dying now. We have had deaths in every facility. We've had suicide rates increasing. And we're talking about any given day, thousands of thousands of thousands of men, women, and children just in the city jails and in the state jails. NYCAIC is dedicated to ending torture and solitary. We have the HALT Solitary Confinement. I'm an acronym guy, so please excuse me. Humane Alternatives to Long-Term Solitary Confinement Act is the name of the bill. And it really gives a, a, a collective of people, lawyers, and citizens, and everyday family members to fight. Um, it gives you the resources. There's one website. You can join the campaign. Um, you can donate if you want um, and also support our efforts. But more so, be a part of and understand why you're paying $200,000 per person in city jails right now, why your taxes are so high, why New York is the number one place to live in. It's all because of mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex that really permeates our state. Um, so no matter what borough you're in, part of that borough's income is going to a borough jail and a city-based jail, a private facility, and a federal facility. So start at the bottom. Start at the dungeon, and let's start it where people are dying and suffering and torturing, and let's raise the level of humanity. And that starts with just uh, joining the campaign. Or if you're interested, find out some facts. Or donate. Yeah, definitely donate. Um, five, man. I can't thank yeah. you enough for being a guest today, man. Uh, Thank you. Anytime. Yeah. Uh, look, honestly, I, I truly feel like we could go on for another two hours. No problem. I have a list of notes. So let's have you back. Yes, yeah. let's do it. I'd love to have you back, man. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, thank you, Meg. Thank you, Alon, as always. Um, remember, tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific time at StartupRadioNetwork.com. And from all of us at Felony Inc. Podcast, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Peace. All power to the people. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.